0: Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class, led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy.
1: Study again of John 1. So let's uh, kind of remind ourselves again of what, uh, of what we're doing here is that we're looking at the Gospel of John not just simply from an understanding perspective, certainly doing that, but we're also looking at it in in the form of the way that 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 perhaps John wrote the book with the idea of reaching out to people that were not oriented in the same way that the uh, that a Jewish person would. And that made perfect sense because he's mostly writing for the benefit of Greeks. And we talked about the different worldviews and the different mindset that Greeks often had versus other people. And so, again, it's this idea that if you're going to reach out to people who maybe don't think the way you do, or maybe weren't raised the way you are, or maybe they look different than you, or maybe they eat different food than you do, whatever their culture is that's different from us, then the question always is, do we need for them to come to us Or do we need to go to them? And if we go to them, where's the bridge? Where's the the, the place where we meet? And so what we discover in John's gospel is that he's thinking in terms of using the very words that Greeks would use, but now giving them a a fuller meaning, if you will. And yet at the same time, recognizing that sometimes if a Greek would read, for example, the word logos... The Greek would interpret that word in the way that he meant for it to be, not necessarily the way John meant for it to be. So an example of that, I think, in our day-to-day walk would be if, let's say that you are a Lutheran. Well, just pretend, okay? <laughs> let's pretend that you're a Lutheran and you grew up in Iowa. Do we have anybody that grew up in Iowa, by the way? Oh, good. There's one or two here. Excellent. Okay. And then you, tra- you become a transplant to the South, to the Bible Belt. Where in Iowa, almost everybody is Lutheran and Catholic, and then there's a smattering of Baptists and Methodists and other people, right? Uh, those other things, right? But when you come down to the South, what, what do you discover about the ratio?
0: Can you fail Jesus? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I will will no longer be looking in that direction. (laughs) So there's a different culture, is there not? There's a different culture. There's a different expectation. There's a different way that things are done, right? And we could take the view that would say, well, we expect them to come to us, we expect them to, to, to meet us halfway, but halfway means be like us. <laughs> right? Isn't that what it means? Yeah. And so, and so the issue is then if, if that's not going to happen, then what do we do? Just throw up our hands and say, well, sorry, we can't, can't do anything. No, we take, we take John's perspective. We take John's perspective. We meet people where they are, and we engage with people where they are. And so how do you do that? How do you be the bridge? And that's the see, that's the question that John was asking. How do we bridge the gospel that was born in a Judeo environment, a Jewish environment? How do, how do you take that gospel and how, does it, how do you make it appeal or even attractive, if in some sense of that word, to people that didn't grow up like that? People don't even think like that. People whose vocabulary isn't even like that. How do you do that? And how do you do it in such a way that you're not getting in the way of what the gospel is really all about, as opposed to, in some sense, uh, walking alongside that gospel so that that gospel can do its work and we're not getting in the way. Make sense? And so that's the perspective that we're taking toward this. So we get into this in, uh, in John chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at verses 6 to 8. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Key word in there is witness. All right. So let's talk about a little bit about witness. A witness does two things. A witness does, first of all, observes. A witness can observe, you can observe with your eyes, certainly, or with your ear, or with some experience that you have. And then the second thing that a witness does is tells what he or she has observed. So let's, let's look at that first part with, with respect to observing. So when we think in terms of observing, we're asking the question, what is it that you see? What is it that you notice and in particular, as we think about being a Christian witness or being a bridge, if you will, what of God's grace and mercy do you see? So I'll just throw the question out there. What of God's grace and mercy did you see this week? I have a perfect answer. You have a perfect example.
2: We were loading the uh, two semi-trailers yeah. of and World Relief stuff on yeah. the parking lot yesterday. Okay, good. We had a lady and her son that were walking through the neighborhood That stopped to help us for a couple hours because of the witness that she saw. Yeah. So I think sometimes.
1: And you noticed that. Okay. Now she saw it and she was blessed by what she saw in what you were doing. Right. And helping us. Yes. Oh. And see, we're not always thinking about who's watching us. In terms of what we do we weren't paying any attention. (laughs) In fact, we're not even we're not I mean when you're in the middle of doing what you're doing Right, that's right. So I'm so grateful that you guys were saying only good words and no bad words, right? Right, I mean when you think about it from that perspective and I know you wouldn't but when you think about it from that perspective you're caught up in whatever it is that you're doing and you're not thinking about who's watching and more significantly, who might be listening. We just get caught up in what we're doing. When you're a witness and when you are thinking the way a witness thinks, then you're also bearing in mind the way that you conduct yourself in such a way that makes it easier for people to link your Christianity with who you are. That your Christianity isn't just something you believe. Your Christianity is someone who you are. And that, that, that connection or that, uh, that, that uh, congruence between who you are and what you do or how you act then does not become a obstacle to that person coming to Christ or saying, oh, that's what, that's what it is to be a Christian. Whoa. I think I would like to have more of that. Yeah, Bob. Uh,
3: people also read your face Be a joyful expression and not a standard expression.
1: Except when you're heavy, lifting heavy boxes, you know. <laughs> That's like, oh boy, but you're right, you're right. There is a, there is a, a there are conclusions that people draw on the basis of, of your body language and of your face, okay? But again, given the context of what we're doing, I think most people would sort of say, well, yeah, okay, they're doing hard work and they're pretty tired from that. But that's a very good point, all right? So again, in it, thinking of it in this way is not only the fact that other people notice what we're doing and and they benefit from the witness of what we do. But what I'm asking here is for you to begin to think in terms of noticing what you notice. Paying attention to what you pay attention to. And so the next question has to do with then, or the next aspect of being a witness has to do with then, what does a witness do with what he he or she sees or hears is that you tell. So the question that, that is in my mind is, when you talk about what you notice, or when you give witness to what you observe, how much of it is positive and how much of it is negative? And what's the ratio of the two? What do you think? Kind of getting quiet here. <laughs> A little conviction going on right now, yeah.
4: I think it can depend on an area or aspect of your
1: life. Okay.
4: Because, for example, you know, I teach these Chinese children You're teaching
1: day. Chinese every morning right. at 4.30, right? And I'm yes. Now. Oh.
4: And now it's six. I'm oh, six. Oh, <laughs> thank goodness, okay, And good. one of the things that I do when I get up, every one of those kids they can feel that I love them, accept them exactly where they are. Yeah. Like that is one place in my life where I feel that I do it. When it comes to politics, yeah, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I put politics on here. As a matter of fact, holy cow! Look Depends. at that.
4: Different areas and different aspects of our life because we all have, okay. you know, things that we struggle with. We all
1: do. And things that annoy us and irritate us. And I tried to list all those things right here on here. Yeah, I tried to do that. Yeah, because when it comes to the happy things in our lives, I would say the ratio of positive to negative is probably 90-10, right? Yeah, and that's awesome. 90% positive and 10% negative, that, that's, boy, you'd be almost in heaven if that happened, right? <laughs> but what about the stuff that, that gets under our skin, See, what about things going on in the world? Or what about politics as an example? Or what about just other people, maybe people that you work with or people in your family, people that, that, that don't see things the way you do and have no intention to? What about that? Then very often what happens is that ratio shifts, does it not? And we move to, to a majority of it is negative and then some of it is left over with positive. And you see, if that's what you're paying attention to, if that's what you're observing as a witness, then the question would be, how much is that impacting you in terms of what you then talk about? Are you even able to see God's mercy and grace at work, even in the world, even with other people, even with politics, even with family, even with church, even with whatever is the thing for you? Are you able to do that? And I would argue you do what you practice. You do what you practice. Many of us are really good at seeing the negative and mentioning it to somebody or just to ourselves. You got to train yourself. And it doesn't mean you become pie in the sky, you know, like, oh, you're Pollyanna, you know, it, it isn't that. You'll be accused of that, by the way. But it's the idea that 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 positive of God's grace and mercy, you see it in a way that maybe nobody else does. And you're able to reference it then when you speak of it. And that's the point here. Yeah, Jackie and then Carl. To
2: continue on your same line, neurobrain science says that if you, you know, if you're thinking that way, you're developing that that pathway in your brain. That's right. You need to
3: stop that.
1: That's because right. Because
2: you're just that's the way it's going to go. Your yeah. brain's going to go.
1: That's before. the neural pathway that you go to. And it's a little bit of you know how sometimes people will say, "I just don't know why I keep doing that." You ever heard people say that or you said that yourself, "I just don't know why I keep doing that." Well, the answer is because you keep doing that. <laughs> I mean, really, that's like no not rocket science. We keep doing it, but but we do it without thinking. Right, we do it in, a, in an instinctual way without necessarily having a little pause in there somewhere, and then we sort of consider whether we're going to do it or not. Yeah, Carl.
5: Uh, what a, one very key element about being a witness, it brings to mind that, that old policeman that used to say, "Just the facts, man, just the facts." Yeah, yeah. Drag that. You know, not here to hear your opinion. I'm yeah. here to hear the
1: facts. Yeah. Does anybody in this room know what he's talking about? <laughs> There's a few people that have a clueless look on their face, like, what is he talking about? So go to Google (laughs) and just Google it, and it'll be in black and white. Sorry, it won't be in color, right? Okay. But if you go next door in that room next door, nobody's going to know what you're talking about on that one. Yeah. But again, see, it's it's this idea of taking into consideration as a witness, okay? As a witness, that maybe we have to train ourselves a little bit better in noticing when God's grace and mercy is present, and not just in the lives of other people, but also in our lives too. And the reason for that is, a reason, not maybe the reason, but a reason, is so that we're then in a position to be able to bring that perspective to bear in life situations that other people deal with, and maybe ourselves. And that becomes your opportunity. It, those opportunities, like you don't even have to plan them. People come up to you and they say, I just can't, I just can't imagine how you can deal with this. Well, this is just amazing. How can you even have a smile on your face during this? Or how can you have any sense of hope in this because it seems so hopeless? How can you? And see, there's, there's the moment. But if we're so oriented to focus in on the negative as opposed to the grace and mercy part, well, then guess what's going to come out of your lips without even thinking about it? And maybe there's a missed opportunity. Make sense? Yeah, Let's. I got here and then here. Yeah, Richard.
3: You just reminded me of something that happened to me all the time. Yeah. As a teacher, when a student would come up and say something to you, and you're like, yeah, you're thinking, yeah, that sounds like me. Yeah. But you have no recollection And it's like, how much of our life are we going through an automatic pilot without
1: even thinking about what we're saying? Yes. And I think that's what John's getting at here is to be a little more intentional about the opportunity to witness, even in the everyday stuff that we do and to be thinking of it that way. and, And it's not. Oh, we're going to get up and preach to people. It isn't that at all. What it is, is we're linking the idea that God's grace and mercy is present, even when it may appear that it is not. It's a little bit on the sermon this morning. For those of you that were in early service. I don't want to do a spoiler for those of you in the late service. (laughs) But the whole story of Thomas, right? The The whole Thomas story. Is that there's opportunity there but we miss it sometimes because we're not thinking about it from a witness perspective. That's the point. Yeah. Well, I had
4: a really cool thing, a Lutheran school teacher, so I have the opportunity to witness a lot. Yeah. And uh, we've, uh, the kids in class, when we do religion, notice, oh, this is another place in the Bible where it talked about 40 days, so they've noticed some connection. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the boys in class came so excited to school the other day, he goes, I went to, to church with my grandma and grandpa, and you're never going to believe this, but they were talking about 40 days, <laughs> and so he was just excited to see God connecting in his life Mm -hmm. so um, I told him I said well you have to be uh, looking for that being a witness for those that looking for that in your life so um, um, I'm excited to go to school tomorrow because um, I chose for them last week um, but these things are written so that you may believe, oh, yeah. which is the gospel reading this morning. Mm-hmm. It was their verse last week. And now I just was handed a card and the last thing on this card <laughs> says, but these things are written so they may be believed. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to go to school tomorrow to be a witness of what happened, to be able to share with them. Be on the lookout. God's touching you. And that's just his reminder that he's with you always.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Are you going to buy a lottery ticket later on today?
4: (laughs) But but this happens all the time. We just have to be Mm -hmm. on the lookout for it.
1: You know, and the beauty of it is that when you start noticing it, you get chills. Yes. Because you see the linkages that God is working outside of our awareness. And when you have a perspective of faith, you trust that. But boy, it is gold when you get to see it. You know, and every once in a while you just get that. It's like a, like what you're talking about is link, link, link. And it's like, whoa, I didn't even plan that. Whoa, I did, how'd that happen? And But when it happens, it's like an awesome moment, right? And so it's not that we're doing this so that we can increase that number of those moments. But there is something beautiful about the perspective of someone who has spent a lot of time in their life training themselves to notice that, and then to make some observation about that. And what's really interesting for me, and I know I've talked about this like 20 times, is that when you see that in a person who is, you know, like in their 80s and 90s, and you get a chance to go visit them, I do, uh, Pastor Wellman and I do monthly, and what's cool about that is they're telling us, or me, about the linkages of how God's grace and mercy has been at work in their lives. And maybe their life isn't the greatest. Maybe you look at where they're living and you go, oh, that isn't so great. How could that be great? You know, look what you've had to give up, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and, but that's not the perspective. The perspective is one of, of an outlook of not mere positivity. It's not that. It's that God's grace and mercy is, has been working all along. And God promises me that his grace and mercy is still present no matter what's going through my life. And no matter what, what the prospect of the future holds for me. And so in that respect, nothing changes from when they're here on this life to the life that's yet to come. There's, it's like, well, I can, I can just live that life. And it's not big like, oh, look at me. It's not that at all. It's, it's just a, a sense that God is at work in his grace and mercy. And I think that's what John is getting at here in terms of, of this idea of John the Baptist in, in, in terms of, be, of uh, being a witness as one who observed and then bearing witness about the light, who, uh, who's Jesus. Now, notice what it says here about John. It says, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Why is it an important distinction for us to make that we are simply the messengers? That we are there to bear witness to the light, but that we make no mistake, we are not the light. What would be the ramifications of confusing the two? Yeah, awesome.
6: Becoming a false prophet.
1: Becoming a false prophet. Like?
6: There's so many of them that <laughs> what is the thing that happens in like south with the politician with that cult?
1: The cults, for example. Okay. So one of the things that can happen if I confuse my role as the messenger versus I begin to think that I am the light is that one of the easy things that there is to do is that you start drawing people to yourself and enjoying it. Right? And if you enjoy it too much, you start believing everything that people say about you on the basis of how wonderful you are. Now, is it wrong to have people think that you're wonderful? No. But what if you live for it? And what if one day people change their mind? <laughs> like the next day. <laughs> because whatever you did for them lately yesterday, you didn't do for them lately today. The problem is not just yourself, your, your own problem, but the problem is, is that it gets in the way of the role as witness. So two things can happen when you are, bear witness. One thing that can happen is that people receive and hear what you say, and they accept it. The other thing that can happen is what? People would reject it, right? Now, if people reject what you have to say, and you take it personally, what's likely to happen? You won't do it again. You're not going to do it again. So the opportunity is going to be lost because you're not going to engage in it on the basis of how people reacted to you. So you take it personally in that sense and you say, I got rejected as opposed to the gospel got rejected or, or the message got rejected. And Jesus was always warning his disciples about that probability. It wasn't like it was a remote possibility. It was a probability that in the same way that Jesus himself was rejected by the, mostly the establishment, the Jewish establishment of leaders, that he set the stage already for the idea that the servant is not above his master. And the same thing that could happen to the master, which did, was very likely, it was high probability that it would happen to them. And in fact, it did. So it, see, what it does is if we get that goofed up, if we, if, we, if we confuse the roles, then we begin to think that somehow it's on me. And since I'm the one getting the rejection or I'm the one getting the persecution in some form, then I'm just not going to put myself through that anymore. I'm not going to subject myself to that. Now, what if the opposite is true? What if what you uh, the witness that you give is accepted and received and you take it personally? What happens?
5: You get a really big ego. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And what happens is we begin to believe our own press. You know what I'm talking about with that? Now, if you are fortunate and blessed, God has put someone in your life <laughs> that will remind you that you are not all that in a bag of chips. <laughs> and I won't ask for hands here. I think we all know. Okay. But again, you see where if you confuse the role, what Two not good things can happen, right? And, and so it gets in the way of the witness. So again, the reminder here is, as John knew that he was not the light, he was the witness to the light. Nonetheless, the association of the witness to the light means whatever happens to the light in terms of people's acceptance or rejection is very likely to happen to people who give witness to the light. Okay, well, let's go to verse 9. nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, we have seen this, uh, a theme in the Gospel of John. I mean, we're very early in that Gospel, and we're already seeing a theme in here indicated by that word true. So the word true or truth in the Greek is alethes. And alethes is a word that also can mean real or genuine in other words, it's, it's genuine. It's the real thing that when you trust that which is true, when you trust that which is real, that which is real is distinguished from that which is deceptive, that which is not real. And so we've talked, a lot, uh, we've talked about this in, in some sense with in terms of how the Greek mind worked is the greek mind had a really hard time with the idea that the perfect god could in some way come down to earth and make himself part of the human race that just completely blew the greek mind away because the greek mind always thought that that which is of spirit of god was perfect and in some sense was prevented from becoming that which, becoming or be, being a part of that which was essentially evil which was anything material So the Greek mind is going, how can this be? How can this be? And that's what John is attempting to do is bridge the beauty of the gospel to people who don't think like that. And he's trying to help them see that the true light, the real light, which gives light to everyone is coming into the world and would be Jesus. Now, why would that be important? Austin alluded to it a little bit earlier with respect to the likelihood that people could become deceived about who the real light is. And Jesus was always concerned about that. If you look at Luke 21, verse 8 there. And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. And what does Jesus say? Do not go after them. Now, when you think in terms of why or how does that which is deceptive work? One of the things that we discover about, about people or, or, or religions or, or, or institutions that are deceptive in their message is that they include just enough truth in it to make it palatable. Now, we know from the scriptures, for example, that Satan himself is the master of deception, Right. And and one of the things we often forget is that the devil knows the Bible better than we do. And he does not hesitate to use God's word to deceive us away from the truth. Can you think of an example where the devil used the very word of God to deceive people into doing what he wanted them to do instead of what God wanted them to do? Can you think of an example? Yeah, we think of Adam and Eve, for example. What does he do? He goes right after it, doesn't he? Did God not say? Well, of course he knew that God said this as, as opposed to that. But because there's just enough truth in there, there's just enough in there for our sort of rational way of thinking to kick in and say, Well, yeah, you know, when you think about it like that, gee whiz, what else could it be? Can you think of another example? Yeah. When Jesus was tempted. Yes. yes. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Satan is quoting the Psalms to try to get Jesus to do what? To jump off the top of the temple. And if he does that, the angels in heaven would swoop down and catch him just before he landed and he would not break a sweat or a bone or anything else, right? And Jesus, of course, saw right through that. So the question, I think, in some sense is, how do you keep yourself from being susceptible to deception? How do you do that? Yeah? Search, search okay. Pardon? As I search the scriptures, read, read the word, learn the word so, so you don't get uh, straight. So if the word is our foundation and we say, well, I know all that, and I don't ever crack the book, so to speak or I don't ever engage with it in some sort of um, study form, or some sort of uh, uh, filling it in your life form, then I'm going to be very susceptible to the idea of anybody coming along and saying what? Well, this is what the word says, and this is what the word means. And if I take it at face value without checking that out, without having some working knowledge of the word, then I'm going to be very susceptible to uh, to even giving into or, or following that perspective. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I don't know what the Bible says, but I think. <laughs> Gee, I wish everybody would say that. Then it would be obvious who we should avoid, right? <laughs> All right, so let's look at four ways on the next page, top of page seven, four ways that... Uh, we might be able to recognize when deception is likely. And this, again, goes to the idea of spiritual discernment. You know, I think one of the things that, that happens as a result of either not being in the word on, in a regular way, right, or assuming that we don't need to push the word with people because we say, ah, oh, they already know it is that what happens is, is that then what happens is the quality of people's ability to be spiritually discerning drops. And maybe that's part of what's going on in the world today. Maybe that's where we need as the church to kind of bring our A game back to this. All right. So the first way, A way that deception is possible is the deception of making moral decisions without an objectively, and I would add biblically conservative, moral compass. That happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, the whole book of Judges is almost the whole book is about this. That what started to happen was people got out of the word and they, and they concluded, and that, that's the verse there, everyone did what, what was right in his own eyes. Gee, is there any of that going on today? <laughs> See, that's again that idea that that if I, if I take the, the moral compass out of the biblically, and I say it this way, biblically conservative, because there's also biblically liberal. What biblically liberal people do with the Bible, it's, a, it's, a still, it's still the Bible, but what they do with it is way different than what biblically conservative people do. So that's why I add that part. But if everybody's doing what they think is right in their own eyes or their own heart, Who gets to look at their eyes or who gets to look at the heart? And if we just base the decisions that people make on that, then it's basically going to come down to if it feels good or if I think it's in my best interest. It doesn't matter if it's in your best interest or not. If it feels good to me, if it feels right to me, then I'm going to do it. That's a recipe for disaster. And that's what was happening in the book of Judges. Okay? Second one. The deception of interpreting Bible passages absent their context. Now, what's that talking about?
5: Taking one verse and applying that and ignoring all the other verses. Yeah. Um, Like... Something that I think about is uh, I'm very big into politics. Uh oh. <laughs> and uh, I'm starting to follow uh, the candidates running on the Democratic platform. And an up and coming and rising star on the Democratic Party right now is a gentleman by the name of Pete Buttigieg, I think is how you pronounce his last name, who is. Say uh, it. He is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He uh, has, I think, he did a lot of good economic things for them. He is, calls himself a devout Christian, mm-hmm. but he is also a practicing homosexual. Right. He is married to another man, mm-hmm. and he talks about faith. Mm-hmm. And when people ask him about it, he says, Well, the scripture says we should love those who are the most lowly, and I love people where they're at, and everything. He's engaging in practicing sin, but saying, Well, what matters is we love everybody and we accept everyone where they're at. And that's kind of what, I mean, the key thing the LGBT community mm-hmm. targets Christians as is we don't accept. We don't believe in what they do. And they say, oh, if you don't believe what I'm doing, and look at this love that I have for this mm-hmm. person. We're hateful. They're cherry-picking, saying, well, if you don't love me, then you're hateful, and love is law. God's law is the fulfillment of love.
1: So the idea, see, is of cherry, called cherry-picking. It's where I take a verse out of the context of who wrote it and what was it talking about and what was the setting and all that kind of thing and try to apply it to the situation that I am saying this verse now applies to. So in our, kind of in our Lutheran world, in terms of how we treat the scriptures, and this would be in terms of biblically conservative perspective, is that we look at the context, and we also look at the idea that scripture interprets scripture. So it's likely that there's more than one passage in the scripture having to do with love, as an example. Or it's likely that there is more than one scripture in the Bible having to do with, with uh, same-sex sorts of, of uh, relationships. It's very likely. And so what do you do? You see that verse over there, and then you have to take that verse over there, and you put all the verses together. And one of the, th- one of the aspects of that that's significant is because biblically conservative Christians look at the entire Bible as the Word of God as opposed to bits and pieces of it being the Word of God. So if you take the view that says the Bible contains the word of God, well, that means that there's part of the Bible that isn't the word of God. And we can X that out in favor of whatever the position is that we have on some of these moral decisions. And it's not just on same sex kinds of stuff. It's also on abortion. It's also on some of the other issues that people today say, well, the Bible says this and then they stop right there. One of the favorite ones is judge not lest ye be judged. Matthew 7 as if that is the only place in the Bible where it talks about that idea. Well, you can't judge me because if you judge me, you're breaking that, that, that verse. Well, it would be nice if you read past the semicolon. <laughs> right? And looked at the context of Matthew 7, 1 to 7, not that just that first set, Matthew 7, 1b, that you, you don't go just to there. See? So again, it, to... For, for you and I to challenge that in a, in a uh, certainly in an evangelical way, okay, but, but in an informed way, you need to be in the word. Because if you're not in the word in a biblically conservative way, then guess what's going to happen? People that are opposing the Bible know it better than you do. And you're going to have egg all over your face. And maybe the witness, that opportunity that you had is lost. Yeah, Carl. This goes especially in, in, in the days when the Jehovah Witness knocks on your door. Yeah. Because they, their position is partially scriptural. It's partially scriptural. It's not, so the, the, best, the best thing you could do is invite them in and say, well, let's look at that scripture. And... And follow go to go to part B. Go beyond the cold semicolon. I know, Carl, but I have to admit that when I see them coming, I run and hide. I just I just am out of my league on that, you know, and I study the scriptures, but I'm not that good at arguing that stuff. And what happens to me is people whose brains work faster than mine. They have, a, they have a distinct advantage over me because they'll say something and I'll go, like, blank. And then it feels like it's 20 minutes. It's probably only like two seconds. But, but anyway, I just get discombobulated with that. It's really so sorry. I'm not going to be the most shining example up here of, of witnessing to uh, people who are trained, by the way, they're trained to be confrontive and they're trained to be insistent. And they are trained to not listen to what you're saying, but to counter the argument that you have. So, they're brainwashed. so see, no, they're just trained. And because I have a I have a family member who's an attorney and he's the same way.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just that brain works like that. And that brain, that's why he's really good at what he does. Well, that's why they are very good at what they do. So some of it might be a training aspect, but some of it might also just be that, you know, you're kind of wired that way. Yeah, back here. I just
5: want to say on the subject of JW, you really need to do your homework before you try to witness the one. Yeah. And yes, they are brainwashed. Yeah. And it's half my family is Jehovah's with Sure, (laughs) sure. So we have that battle where we try to avoid the battle. Well.
1: How do you love them? I know, that's tough. When you love them, how do you do that? You know, at the same time that that you run into that brick wall.
0: So we, we have
1: literature that helps us, teach us. Ooh, that's good. You know, yeah. uh, you know how to combat
5: their teaching, mm-hmm.
1: the New World Translation. Sure.
5: <coughs> and so if you have one come to your house, you better have your English version, because it's going to say something completely different from their New World Translation in certain yeah. verses. Yeah. Because they're attempting
1: to separate the deity of God. And they, they, they took the verses in the Bible that establish Jesus as the son of God. And they take that little article, the, and turn it into a, so that there's a very intentional effort that's made there to deceive in terms of, in term uh, slanted in the direction that they would then say, well, here it is right here. Look at this right here. And if you're not trained or oriented as you guys are, then you know you're going to be going what do i say what do i do okay we have a couple hands up yeah jackie and then awesome
2: i really enjoyed talking with the jehovah witnesses and i <laughs> about really <religion>. awesome <laughs> <laughs> but after i don't know 6 months of them coming it was christmas time yeah and they saw the tree and they were like oh no yeah. you can't put up any tree right. you can't mm-hmm. do any of that right. and then they said you can't Have pride in America. Right. You can't.
1: And I was like, oh no. So it kind of reached the red line there for you? Yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, they might know the Bible and everything, but they got to that point, it was like, "Uh, what? I, I can't. Be proud that I'm an American. I can't stand it. You know, it's
1: like, and I can't have a Christmas tree. I, can't, I mean, you can't really. Right. So there are moments in the life of the witness where you realize that you're not going to make a dent. And in fact, continued witnessing, I guess you could use that word. Only makes things worse. So there is, in the, even in the Bible, there is this idea, and, and Jesus talks about it, I think it's in Matthew, where he talks about it, that you go to the house of somebody that is, uh, would maybe welcome you in, and then you share the gospel with them, and you hit the brick wall, and that's it. They will not receive you. Jesus says, do what? He says, shake, leave, shake the dust off your feet. Basically, is a way of saying that I did the best I could. It's not a reflection on me. I didn't say the words the wrong way. And in that is that this heart is not receptive to what the gospel is saying. And so the idea is that you go ahead and leave in peace. And you don't, you know, like throw rotten eggs at their door as you go out the door. You don't drop a hand grenade on them and see, you know, you're going to hell. You don't do that. What you do is you just say, peace be with you. And you go to the next place. Now, see, that's where the, the hard part of being a witness sometimes means that the, the, that which you are witnessing to or of is rejected. If that happens, how will you feel? You will feel lousy. Yes, deflated. That's a good word, but you'll feel lousy. And there might be a sting there. And there might be some doubts that creep in where you say to yourself, oh, what a loser I am. I can't even do this right. You know, there's, there's lots of different things you're going to feel and think. And you may even conclude that you would be better off with a church job that doesn't involve witnessing. <laughs> okay. What I would say is okay. That's okay. You mu- that's how you feel right then. Just because you feel that way right then doesn't make it true. And it doesn't mean that you have to change what you are or who you are on the basis of how you feel, because how you feel isn't going to be how you feel forever. You will feel that way for the next five seconds, maybe even the next five minutes, maybe even the next five hours. But you won't feel that way for the next five days. And then it's time to get back in the game. Make sense? yeah uh, Austin and then uh.
6: and that ties into what I was going to talk about you know on the Buddha Jay thing. One of the biggest problems I think with poli- uh, political polarization is we can't love each other and disagree wholeheartedly. We can't you know love the sinner, hate the sin. love the human, the fellow in Christ, but disagree with the action, disagree with the belief, disagree with the sin, And that's where we kind of have to just accept humanity and there are differences between us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not everyone can agree on every single issue every single time.
1: That's right. Do you agree with your parents every single time? (laughs) Now, I know they agree with you on everything, but I don't know if you can agree with them. Yeah, Peggy.
3: I need advice as to how you prevent beating yourself up when you try to dust, shake the dust from your feet before we ever witness, thinking that there is no way you're going to be effective with these people. And I'm talking about Muslims in particular because there are a number of them around us. Yeah. And I struggle with this a lot. I keep thinking, you know, there's something I should do. And we pass their mosque mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm think you see children coming and going, and I've always got this thought, oh, these poor misguided people, and especially these children, Mm -hmm. who are going to do and believe what the parents tell them, and I'm surrounded by Muslims, Mm -hmm. and yet I feel like these people will never listen to what I have to say. Mm -hmm. If I reverse them... If I thought they were trying to witness to me, would I believe them? Absolutely not. And they are just as strong in their beliefs. Right. So I'm shaking the dust off before I ever witness.
1: So, um, again, I think there's, if you think of it from this perspective, first of all, you're, you are being convicted by the Spirit and your heart is being touched by their plight. So I would sort of suggest that you're not shaking your, you're not doing that because if you were, then your heart wouldn't be touched by what's going on with them. The question is, who is best equipped to reach out to a religion where the, the people that, the adherence to the religion in the, in the case you're talking about are pretty hardcore. Maybe there are people that are better equipped to do that, i.e. people who were formerly Muslim. I'm thinking of the ministry in Dallas, Disciples of the Way, Kareem Badawi, Pastor Kareem, we all, maybe many of you know him. He is way better positioned. So the question would be, if my heart is being touched by that, that plight, in what way might I be able to support that without necessarily me being the one doing it because I'm not Arab, I'm not Muslim. I I don't even know if I know what it would be like to be a Muslim because I come at it things from my white Anglo-Saxon, German, Protestant, Texan point of view. (laughs) See? (laughs) Clearly we know that's superior, but you know, besides that. But I'm just saying, that's, that's what I'm saying is that That then if, so I would suggest that your heart, that you are, you have not wiped the dust off your feet, shake the dust. You haven't because your heart is saying to you, there's, there's a need there. I would suggest that, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, because I do. I just think that way that, that there's still the spirits going Peggy, 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 right? That's what it's doing, all right? And so how can I support that? Given the fact that I I don't know enough about Jehovah's Witnesses and I don't have any in my family to be able to have that connection. I don't know enough about Hindu. I don't know enough about those. I don't. But that doesn't mean that there's not some opportunity there for me to support that. And maybe supporting it certainly would be praying for those who are doing that, but maybe also financially supporting those who are actually doing that ministry and they're doing it way better than I can because they used to be in that realm and they are no longer in that realm. Does that make sense? Yeah. We, we have received Jews for Jesus newsletters for many years. Jews for mm-hmm. Jesus, yeah. And, and, and they plead with us to witness to their people because that's our job, whether it be a Muslim or a Jew or whatever. And, and, and uh, the Jehovah's witness that come to your door, uh, just say, May I share with you? Oh, no, no. And they leave. You know. So that's another perspective. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Well, guess what? We are going to have to close for today. Wow, we got through six verses. Awesome. Wasn't that fun? I think that was fun. All right. So we're going to pick it up next time with Right Where We Are. All right. That's the best way to do that, I think, here. All right. All right. So let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together. So many questions we have, Lord, about how, it, that the fact that we are witnesses. Well, what does that mean? And how do we do that? And in particular, how do we do it in, the, in a world now that, that's very pluralistic, a world that, that doesn't necessarily look at the Bible as being absolute truth, doesn't even look at anything as absolute truth? How do we connect to that? how do we do that, Lord? Well, first of all, we do it through your word. And secondly, we do it because the word is in us. It has the effect of growing hope and faith and love in us. And oftentimes that's what attracts others to us. Help us see that, Lord. Help us see your, your grace and your mercy at work so that we can be gracious and merciful to those around us. And that in turn translates into an opportunity. The opportunities are many, Lord. And so give us the opportunity and the sight to see it and the courage to act on it. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. Watch over those who are listening to our podcast. We pray for God's blessings on them. And uh, we look forward to our being together again. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.